safeguarding 16 and 17 year olds. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Welcome back to Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast. We're on our sixth episode now, so we're just over halfway through our mini-series of podcasts. Everyone's Business is part of the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast, and this series is all about safeguarding. We've looked at so much to date. The impact of trends, mistakes in safeguarding adults, how safeguarding systems are developing in Africa, how they need to be developed in esports, and what we can learn from safeguarding adult sports. You've got in touch from Ireland, from Gibraltar, from the Netherlands. Our aim was to look at how safeguarding was developing around the world and we're getting there. And you've shared your thoughts with us too. Your social workers, your safeguarding adults board chairs, your participants in sport and coaches, your solicitors, your parents, your people receiving support from statutory services, your police officers, nurses, doctors, and faith leaders. I'm your host, Ian Brownhill, and I'm so glad that you've chosen to work with us and have this conversation. Today's a special episode for me. It's all about safeguarding 16 and 17 year olds, something which is very important to me in my professional life. And I'm joined by a guest today, Emma Hill. Emma is an experienced social worker with an extensive history of working within the fields of adult safeguarding and management within statutory adults and children's services. She's got over 20 years experience, including in the fields of the court of protection and best interest assessment. She's able to provide a bespoke and diverse skill set to complex safeguarding work and in the areas of service development and delivery in such fields on a project delivery basis. She's also got a strong research interest in transitional safeguarding and has contributed to a number of research projects, including Bridging the Gap, Transitional Safeguarding and the role of social work with adults. Emma provides consultancy and training within such areas of expertise alongside independent social work assessments and the management of complex risk. Sadly for Emma, uh, she met me in a complex high court case <laughs> involving a transitioning young adult a few years ago now, and we were actually on the opposite sides. Uh, but since then, we, we have met again, again with a complex young adult, and we were on the same team. And the best news of all is that Emma, just like me, hails from the West Country. So you might hear her tease out my R's today uh, as we continue in our conversation. So hello, Emma. Tell our listener who you are and all about your work. Hi, I'm Emma Hill, social worker, independent social worker now, having uh, just finished 20 years of local authority social work, which was an absolute phenomenal journey. Working in adults, primarily for around 16, 17 years, uh, also being able to um, lead in the design and implementation of a safeguarding operational system. And then I moved over to Children's, and I'm not quite sure how I got there, but um, <laughs> I ended up there. I was asked yeah. by our director to just pop over for a month. I was there for two and a half years. But what I found was that the young people that I would find experiencing adult safeguarding, actually, we needed to consider things very differently to stop them actually experiencing adult safeguarding. And so being able to place myself in uh, teams whereby children were being looked after and then transitioning into adulthood, I was able to bring across years of knowledge around mental capacity because I think that that was the fundamental thing that I was seeing missing 
in when we were doing some work regarding placements, commissioning and understanding risks. So, um, yeah, so it was quite a journey. I left the local authority in February and now I am independent and loving life. (laughs) <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad to hear your loving life. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I made a joke earlier about us having crossed paths yes. earlier in our lives <laughs> in respect of 16 and 17 year olds. And one of the things I'm going to start with asking you is why is it that working with 16 and 17 year olds is such a particularly challenging job? And that isn't an easy question to answer. In terms of 16 and 17 year olds, they're different. They experience a different type of harm. As a child, the child protection procedures are aimed at protection from family and adults. Mm. If you think about child protection systems, they were created in the 60s and 70s to protect babies from parents. These children still remain vulnerable from immediate and extended families, but we're now in 2022. What does that mean and what does that look like for 16 and 17-year-olds? What do they experience? What protection do we have to support them with? What do we need to understand? Because... The risk has evolved over the years, which means a different approach is required. And so to answer why, you have to understand what these young people are now facing in our society, what this generation experiences is different for a younger person in terms of um, harmful sexual behaviour, county lines, those vulnerabilities that we're all really aware of that still continue. Mm. Also then bring in the Mental Capacity Act in terms of keeping them safe and making decisions, making unwise decisions, assessing capacity, but people really truly understand the risks that they're facing. I think phenomenally, you have to consider contextual safeguarding. That's your starting point. In terms of 16 Mm. and 17 year olds, that's your starting point. Carleen Furman is my absolute go-to. She is so strong in terms of understanding the risk that these young people face Mm. and what agencies can do to support these young people. All the work is out there. How do we pull it together? And that's where our starting point is because you then, if you start to consider that, you then understand why is it different for a 16 and 17 year old? This is a time of growth for them. Mm. Physical growth emotional growth. It's a hugely challenging space between childhood and adulthood. They're fighting to be that adult. Mm. But actually you consider the trauma that they've experienced as young people within their families. What can you do to help them through a really challenging time? The harmful sexual behaviour That is a very different experience now for a 16-year-old. So in in terms of questions about sort of sexual relationships and sexual exploitation, what's different for 16 and 17-year-olds, do you think? I think it's the exposure. I think what they're exposed to in terms of social media, the pressure, Mm. society, the demand in terms of older adults recognising vulnerabilities that maybe Mm. young people wouldn't have been exposed to in the past. Or we previously have acknowledged in the past, maybe. And certainly, I suppose there's been uh, more focus on recognising that young people are potentially being exploited Mm. and potentially at risk of exploitation 
one of the, the sort of things that you, as you dive deeper into safeguarding, one of the things that always strikes me is that we never really used to have conversations, it seems, uh, about sexual exploitation. Yeah. And if we did have uh, conversations about sexual exploitation, 16 and 17-year-olds fall into this sort of strange hinterland, don't they, between mm. childhood and adulthood. And that's really difficult to manage, surely. Absolutely. Again, it's that challenging space between childhood and adulthood. The young people that I've worked with, you know, they can't wait to get to 18. Many of them, on a care, you know, looked after by the local mm. authority, looking for that age 18 where they know that they can make decisions about their lives because mm. they'll no longer be on a care order or yeah. be subject to a care order. And so these young people, they want this independence. And now in respect of that, you've mentioned care orders. And I think mm. one of the things that we need to, I need to be upfront about and I need to be open with is that my experience has been with 16 and 17 year olds, that the law is not easy. We've got the Children Act in one bit. We've got the Children and Families Act in another bit. We've got the mental capacity in another bit. We've got the inherent jurisdiction floating around in the background um, with all of that. And one of the things that this series has given me is an insight into the fact that I might think it's relatively straightforward. But from a social worker's perspective, you're sometimes being asked to pull strands of law from here, there and everywhere, aren't you? And I think that's where legal literacy comes in. You know, that has to be paramount in every thought process, reflection, consideration of that young person, keeping them central to everything that you are doing. Every decision that you are making about that young person will have an impact on that person's life. Yeah. I think so moving on to care orders in terms of residential care, when a placement breaks down so quickly because of the reasons we've just talked about, this young person is absconding. The mm. risk that they're placing themselves in, using drugs, associating themselves with older adolescents and adults, mm. taking them through process or having more adverse experiences whereby residential care homes cannot safely manage that young person when they've mm. tried to it becomes an incredibly challenging situation. And then you have to consider the role of that registered manager, you know, being able to keep that young person safe in mm. that regulated accommodation, whereby that person is just challenging beyond challenging because they don't feel listened to. They're not being heard. They want, they want freedoms that they're not getting. And I can understand why, because they're being, you know, the, the risk that they're exposed to is so different these days. And so you'll see a placement breakdown. And then suddenly you and I are talking about an emergency application mm. because the care home has said, right, I'm really sorry. I have to give notice. I've got to protect yeah. my staff, my registration, Ofsted. And that's really challenging for that person and the care home because they don't want I don't I don't believe any care home ever wants to say I can't meet the needs of this young person mm. but the services that we're looking at where somebody needs that level of care and support at the age of 16 for instance mm. if that's the if that's the cohort that we're looking at our care homes aren't designed 
to meet those needs. They don't recognize what it is that that young person needs. Because again, it's that challenging space between childhood and adulthood again. Care homes predominantly, rural, residential homes predominantly were the end of the care journey, you know, in terms of such significant complex needs that's why that one per young person was going into residential care because ultimately every child should grow up in a family, whether that yeah. be fostered a, a foster family, adoption, they should grow up in a family. But for some children, they can't, and young people, they can't trust adults. They can't have two key people in their lives. So mm. they need to have an environment such as a residential home so they can learn to trust adults again. And then you put into that equation some of the challenges that they're experiencing in that space between childhood and adulthood. And it just becomes so complex. And at the end of the day, that young person has needs that are not being met. And that's why we end up at that sharp end, whereby which, which decision are we going down? Is it family law? Is it court of protection? Mm. And it just becomes so complex. And it's again, back to legal literacy, understand that young person and understand what is available to you to safeguard that young person. And I think that's the key part for me. And I suppose one of the things that is difficult sometimes for people is trying to work out at the start of a case, which option you're going to choose. Because also the judges have been given the option where you can do one or the other. So it's quite an interesting scenario. And in fact, our experience has been that in one case, famously, we had a guardian and we had the official solicitor all at the same time, which was interesting. We had court of protection proceedings and we had family law proceedings at the same time. And I've even been in a situation quite recently where we had uh, family law proceedings coming to an end. We had court of protection proceedings in train and then we had the mental health act being used in another case. So again, it's not a sort of incredibly unusual scenario. And one of the common scenarios in respect of 16 and 17 year olds is rapid escalation quickly. So something going from quite a difficult situation to being a really very dangerous situation. And I don't want to generalize because it's not fair, but my experience has been that actually those cases tend to involve young women with rapid escalation. Is that your experience too? That has been my experience, but looking a little bit deeper into that, mm. for me, section 25 of the Children Act, Secure welfare. Mm. We currently have over 300 local authorities. Every day, there are 50 referrals for Section 25. Yeah. And there are only 14 homes that can support the needs of young people that are subject to secure welfare. Yeah. Is that then the reason why we've got more of these applications? That's the challenge that I put to myself because there is huge demand because, again, the challenging space between childhood and adulthood. If you look at, in May, the statistics for 2022 were released in terms of who is currently in our secure accommodation. Mm. It's mainly boys, age 15. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so you look at, I think, age 15 is one of the highest age groups. And males. Yeah. And so when okay. you start to compare that with our feeling or our approach 
to the court of protection, yeah. whatever route we're going to go, our experience has been females. Yeah. And is that because they're victims of some of those issues that we're already identifying in terms of adolescence, harmful sexual behavior, county lines. These are the young people, the young women that are targeted. And I don't like using the word victims, but actually their dysregulation in terms of their their psychological behavior, their feelings, their self-worth. Mm. And then as, as the local authority, we need to protect them from harm. Is that because we are seeing more females at risk of these issues in adolescence? And can I flip that slightly? Because yeah. I also wonder, I understand what you're saying in terms of that there is a, certainly there are young women who are exploited. I, I completely agree with that. I also wonder, aside from trauma, whether there are problems with the diagnostic systems in terms of mental health, which mean that that young women don't necessarily have the same input that young boys do. So, for example, if if a if a young man goes out has a fight in his teenage years, someone might not someone like look at the causes of that, but a young woman's behaviour might be different. I mean, what's your experience been of that? Do you think there is a diagnostic problem with young women? I haven't done any research around that. My mm. experience has been every application has been about a female, generally sixteen. Most of mine too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's an absolute area for key research. Mm. There are. There are so many researchers who absolutely specialise in this area. The answers are out there. We just have to draw it together to create better systems of protection. My experience has been when we have approached, particularly CAMS, child and adolescence mental health teams, mm. it's about emotional dysregulation. Mm. And the amount of times that a considered approach of emerging personality disorder at the age of mm. 16, that frustrates me because in the adult world, we shouldn't talk about emerging personality disorder until around about age 21. So is there a diagnostics problem? I think that's something worth looking into. My caseload as a locum social worker currently, many boys, young men, mm. adults, male adults in their 20s receiving diagnosis of autism. Mm. I think the information's out there. I think we just need to draw it together to be able to do better. Yeah. So we talked earlier about escalation and, and about how these cases can turn rapidly into multiple proceedings, multiple hearings, rapid changes in placement, rapid changes in care planning. How do we avoid getting into that cycle, do you think? I draw a mind map. Okay. <laughs> Go <sit>. on then. <laughs> I have it here. <laughs> if you start to look at edge of care, the amount of research that talks about how do you prevent somebody from coming into the care system Mm. Essex clearly have researched this and mm. implemented a model regarding mentoring, coaching, having trusted adult relationships. Is it that social workers in our current climate in terms of local authority 
despite our aspirations, our commitment, our integrity, to be able to do good relational social work Mm. can be challenging. Mm. That young person is not living at home with their family or potentially they're on the edge of care, likely to come into care. What can we do there differently to prevent us having to then do those emergency applications? If you look at the timeline of a young person's journey on the edge of care, generally they've been a child in need. Mm. Prior to that, they might have experienced some early help from services. Mm. How then do we rapidly move through that timeline whereby you and I are sat in an emergency court hearing because of the level of risk and Mm. the need to deprive them of their liberty to safeguard them? There is so much evidence, research and practice whereby this has been trialled, modelled. Essex, again, they reduced children coming into care because they developed mentoring and coaching with trusted Mm. adults. Doesn't have to be a social worker. Mm. And so you have to start looking at things differently instead of, well, what do we do at the end that could be different? Actually, what do you do at the beginning? And I think it's about that targeted help, that early help, that early intervention, trusted adults. Contextual safeguarding isn't just the sole responsibility of the local authority. It has to be community. It has to be police. It has to be schools and education. It has to be early mental health support Mm. for families. And I suppose one of the things that we're going to talk about a bit about later is about the the KL decision, the Bolton Council and KL decision. But one of the things that strikes me in dealing with these cases in the court of protection is how few of these people, these young people, have trusted adults around. And I don't just mean that in the sense of there might be difficulty filling a social worker spot or their social worker might have a large caseload. A lot of these young people don't actually have access to other trusted adults who we might have grown up with. So they might be out of education, so they have access to a teacher or a TA. They may not participate in any sport or sort of activity at all like we did. You know, you might have been into drama, you might have been into sport, you might have been into anything, but they don't have any trusted adults in that respect at all. And and then you get presented with a care plan, which is incredibly clinical. And the only person, the only people in that person's life is a social worker, sometimes someone from health. It just strikes me as odd. Therein lies the problem. We don't need more social workers. We need young people to have access to trusted adults. That mentoring, coaching, giving life skills, being able to offer solutions, support, a listening ear. If you think about young people that are in the care system, at 16, they should be introduced to their personal advisor. Mm. Is that a meaningful relationship at the age of 16? When ultimately, at 18, that's when their roles and responsibilities really start to be effective or should be effective. I mean, I I struggle with this because I always... (laughs) So this is where (laughs) I I get into sort of multiple plans, right? Mm. So we've been in cases... uh, We've been in court of protection cases where we've had a CPA care plan, a pathway plan, Mm -hmm. an EHCP, Education Mm -hmm. Health Care Plan, 
um, other plans, other assortments of plans. And I look at this sort of multitude of plans and I wonder whether or not it's the right thing to do. I mean, there's sometimes treated as being the reaction, you know, we were talking about escalation earlier, effectively you put in place another plan. Um, but I, I'm never really sure about pathway plans. Obviously, there's been a couple of occasions where the court has considered them and, and said, young person should definitely have one. But they're not a panacea, are they? They're not a solution no. to all the ills. They don't, they don't give that young person that stability. Mm. They might know who their personal advisor will be, but will that be the same person in two years' time? Well, they're in, you know, they may invest in that relationship at age 16. So they have the social worker, they mm. have their independent reviewing officer, they have whatever setting they are, whether that's foster care or whether that's residential, they have those trusted adults around them. You know, mm. these are all statutory requirements. Actually, for that young person, how meaningful is that? Absolutely needs to happen. But what does it mean for that young person? And what it, will it give that young person in terms of that progression into adulthood? And one of the other things is that I sometimes, especially when people are transitioning to adulthood, we get to 17 and a half in some cases. We look at the multidisciplinary team around a young person and there are faces missing. And that, again, that worries me. And, you know, people say... I don't really have a responsibility in this person until turns 18, where actually, uh, you know, if you, if you think about, for example, um, health, if, there's a, if it looks like a young person's going to be in receipt of continuing healthcare funding, that, that's supposed to be dealt with when they're 17, not when they're 18. Nope. I mean, we've had cases recently where handoff between CAMS and adult psychiatry hasn't been done. And again, that to me seems, th this is why we're coming to the crunch point when 17-year-olds are turning 18. There, there is another point that you raised earlier about, you know, 15-year-olds going into 16-year-olds and the, the jurisdiction's changing. But to me, 17-year-olds to 18-year-olds is a real difficulty that the court is grappling with at the moment. And services grapple with. Mm. If you think about a young person that might be receiving medication at the age of 17 and four months, where we should be planning their transition into maybe adult psychiatry. Mm. But it might be a medication that the adult psychiatrist won't prescribe. How do you manage that? I mean, that must where's be really that difficult. Where's that continuity for that young person? So what, so, so, okay, so, so some of our listeners, as you know, um, are people who are police officers or are people who are managers at Safeguarding Adults Boards. They're not necessarily social workers who are working like you. So what happens when someone goes from 17 to 18? Is there a big meeting where everyone sits around and they plan all this? We should do. I know. There's I, legal I, I mean, it was a bit of a loaded question, wasn't it? <laughs> it was just like, I mean, it's sort of embarrassing within me to ask that question. But, you know. Of course. I, I just don't, under, I, I get to these cases. Case, I mean, to take a case to court costs a lot of money. And I don't always understand why. Uh, let me give you an example. We do cases with young people who've got complex needs they go to court and the local authorities say, oh, I'm only representing the social care aspect. I'm not representing education. That drives me mad. I think to myself, hang on, it's one local authority. I know it's a different department and a different statutory duty, but why are you not all there together? Absolutely. And, you know, if we don't start doing things differently and become one around that young person and supporting them through this, transitional safeguarding is key. And it's not just about managing risk. It's about 
moving that young person through systems mm. into adulthood, mm. recognizing the challenges that they face, 16, 17, and giving them that transition into services whereby they're going to understand who their key people are around them. Who are those trusted adults? What's going to happen to them at 18? Mm. We often refer to the cliff edge. They fall yeah, off the cliff absolutely. edge. Absolutely. And that is, you know, I can't think of anything more visual for that young person in terms of, well, I've had all of this, these hands around me, these mm. statutory arms around me. Mm. And then at 18, what happens to me? I'll get a personal advisor up until the age of 25. What else is out there for me? And we need to be we need to be clear with people. You're listening today. You may not work in this this field, but what Emma and I are talking about, we're talking about young people who get arrested, young people who are sexually exploited, young people who demonstrate some of the most complex trauma and complex self injurious behaviour that you see within any of these cases. It, it, if you don't work in this area, it's hard to describe, isn't it, Emma? That, that oh. what, what, what we've been, fa- I mean, we, we literally have been talking about complex care packages where the, where someone's had six people around them at one time, six to one. I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, we, we, you know, we have, we, we have to, we, we have to be upfront about how difficult some of these cases are. And so I, I mean, it's a bit cheeky to ask you and, and to put you on the spot about what the senior judge said in Bolton Council and KL. And I appreciate you're independent now, so you can you can probably be a bit more honest. But taking young people out of the streamlined system, for me, I think it was completely the right decision. And I'm... I'm oh, she, uh, you can't see <laughs> you Emma. You can see but, my but face. Emma, Emma, <laughs> I, I, I could describe Emma's face to you. But Emma's, let, let me make the case for taking young people out of the streamlined system, right? I think 16 and 17-year-olds are some of the most complicated cases that the Court of Protection has to deal with. So I totally agree with the senior judge when she said, do you know what? The the streamlined application is about meeting the minimum requirements for compliance with the convention. And actually, we need to be looking at the fact that this is a critical stage. I suppose the counter-argument to that, I don't know if Emma's about to make it, the counter-argument is that it doesn't necessarily reflect the fact that sometimes transitions are successful and that the scrutiny of court may have a pressure on that particular young person. But to me, these cases can be so difficult. I think it's a really good decision. So, go on, Emma, what do you think? I agree. Oh, there we go. That's not so no. bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, from my experience, the challenges that we face as local authorities or local authorities face in terms of commissioning in terms of finding the right environment to meet that young person's needs when they need care and support and they need safeguarding with specific risk management techniques, maybe restraint, etc. I absolutely believe we need a welfare approach in terms of scrutiny because the experience I have working for the local authority when you are trying to commission in an emergency situation when a provision has broken down, when somebody's placement has broken down, and despite the efforts you have gone to as a social worker, the team around that person, to then identify a new placement, and then that person ends up in accommodation that doesn't mirror what we would expect in residential care with somebody Mm. with that level of need, I absolutely believe 
that we as the team around that young person needs need to be scrutinized to make sure we're doing it right for that young person that we are legally literate and that we have considered every option in the most least restrictive way to give that young person that space to grow because that 16 to 18 time age time in their life is so complex and challenging when they've experienced maybe the trauma that they have from a very early age and been exposed to some of those parental challenges in terms of mental health, drug use, etc. I absolutely believe that we need the scrutiny in the right court. Still debating what, what is the right court to do that mm. in, but it has, I do actually believe that we need that because of the challenges local authority face in terms of residential care. The amount of young people going into residential care at that age group is huge. And I which is unusual we'll... because if you think about unregulated settings yeah. for 16-year-olds, whereby they're seen in semi-independence, they might see a support worker once in eight hours to check on their well-being and devise a plan for independence and transitions to adulthood, education, health, etc. Is that right? I'm not going to well, go down the rabbit hole around unregulated settings for 16 and to 18 year olds. No, but because that's the, tricky. That's very tricky because well, tricky legally, mm, very. Tr- tr- tricky, very tricky legally, very tricky ethically. But there's another point I just want to sort of put to you almost finally in respect of all of this. Obviously, I've, both of us are, are fans of the decision in Bolton Council and KL. You can read it yourself, 2022 EW COP24. We're both fans of the decision, but one thing that struck me about it, and it links to what you were saying about unregulated placements, I wonder how many 16 and 17-year-olds actually get missed out of the system in this sense. How many 16 and 17-year-olds are subject to care and support arrangements which amount to a deprivation of liberty and nobody makes any application to court. So the transition gets lost entirely until something happens to them when they're 18, 19, 20 and then they go back before the cop. Do you have any sense of that? I think when I moved over to children's services, it was very clear without that understanding of the Mental Capacity Act and what restrictions looked like, I think you were able to identify there were probably young people that their liberty was restricted without a formal process around them. The practitioner that I've become, having both practice in children's and adults, has made me a much better social worker. Being able to use my experience in adult social care and transfer it into children's and understand what restrictive practice looked like because that's what we do in adults. Talking through this with practitioners in children's, being able to identify what a restriction looks like makes them become more legally literate. I wonder how many children's services actually promote the mental capacity at as training mandatory training for children's services. I'd really like to look at that because 
I don't believe there is as much as a commitment in children's at this stage as there is in adults. But there needs to be because this is such a precarious issue for 16 and 17 year olds whereby they're subjected to care and support or they're in receipt of care and support and some of the practices are restrictive in terms of constant supervision, not having access to mobile phones at the age of 16 without a legal framework around them to safeguard them. Nobody does anything because they want to take away people's liberty. They're doing it on the understanding that they're protecting them from harm. But you have to apply the legal frameworks to that. It's about a young person's human rights. And just because they're 16, we shouldn't be taking that away just because we need to manage the risk. So, rights, how many people we've missed out of the system, the impact of KL, and we've shared some of our own experiences. Emma, thanks very much for coming today. Thanks for sharing your insight and your passion for safeguarding 16 and 17-year-olds. If you want to know more about us, visit www.39essex.com. If you want to work with Emma, she can be contacted via LinkedIn or by email at haloconsultservices at gmail.com. If you want to connect on socials, then you can add me on Twitter at Council Tweets. You can add the podcast at safe underscore cast. You can connect with the public law team at 39publiclaw. Let's keep showing that safeguarding is everyone's business. Join us next time where you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Thank you.